In breaking news, new data has been presented at the Breast Cancer Symposium in San Antonio, Texas that may or may not change practice for thousands of oncologists across the globe. Normally, we would be watching from afar, but here at OFTIM News, our man Josh Hurwitz is on the ground to bring you all the latest updates from this very important conference. Josh, tell us what's going on over there. My, my, Michael, I don't know if I'm exceptionally tired or... I find you even more amusing and entertaining than normal. But yes, I am currently in San Antonio uh, looking at the conference center, the Henry G. Gonzalez Convention Center. And we have a couple of really interesting updates to go through. But before we get on to that, Mikey, how are you today? I'm good, Josh. I've been waiting for months to pull that intro out. Uh, Very good. Jealous that you are in San Antonio and I'm in Melbourne where it is, as usual, very wet and rainy and cold, even though it's meant to be summer. Yeah, well, it's quite nice here. It's quite moderate, so to speak. So it's been a a nice couple of days. I've ventured into the wrong part of town and I subsequently turned around, but the river walk is lovely and I found some good coffee spots. So all in all, a good experience for everyone. It's what any true Melbourneian needs is is good coffee. But Josh, you're our man on the ground, as I said in my excellent introduction. So why don't you get us started with what, in your opinion, your learned, experienced opinion was the most exciting thing you've seen at San Antonio? Michael, you're modest as always. So Inavo 120 is what I personally thought was one of the most exciting trials to come out of San Antonio this year. Inavo 120, just to give people a bit of a background, they haven't released the slides, but I stalked through Twitter and I found it. So it's looking at people who have a PIK3CA mutant hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, advanced breast cancer by ctDNA or local tissue. They have to have measurable disease, have to have progression during or within 12 months of adjuvant endocrine therapy and no prior therapy for advanced breast cancer. They also had to have quite a good sugar level and a HbA1c of less than six. And we'll get to why that's important in just a moment. It was stratified based on visceral disease, endocrine resistance, and region. So these patients, there were 325, they were randomized one-to-one to either enavolisib, nine milligrams daily, plus pelvocyclib, 125 milligrams, plus fulvestrant, or placebo plus pelvocyclib plus fulvestrate. And this was continued until disease progression or toxicity. And of course, there's the ongoing survival data follow-up. So looking at the trial population, 34% had primary endocrine resistance and 66% had secondary endocrine resistance. There were additional high-risk factors with 48% being premenopausal, 80% having visceral mets, and 50% having liver involvement. Other things to note is that 38% of the patients were Asian, 48% had had adjuvant tamoxifen only and most had central ctDNA testing, the last patient entering the trial on the 29th of September this year. One thing that they did flag, and I think that's really important, uh, especially in the American context, is there was only one person that was recruited who was black or African-American and, you know, that was one in each arm. And that's pretty shocking when you look at the percentage of people and it does hone into even our population in Australia that we do need to have a heterogeneous population that represents well society which is super important providing really tailored treatment to everyone including based on their genetic profile and their biology it is a very important thing that 
if we're going to be able to get good data, but also data that is applicable across the diaspora of humans, that we include them in trials. So yeah, a major negative, one might say, for the study. That's exactly it. And a number of organ sites, uh, about 50% in both arms had greater than three organs involved, most commonly being liver followed by lung and bone disease. Jumping across straight away to, told you we're going to be quick, to the primary endpoint, which is the progression-free survival. And the secondary endpoints for those that were interested are overall survival, objective response rate, clinical benefit, duration of response, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But the primary endpoint in Investigation investigator assessed PFS showed a hazard ratio of 0.43 with a PFS of 15 months in the intervention arm versus 7.3 months in the control arm. So that is double, Michael. That is double. And of course, they had to have the PIK3CA mutation. So that's a really, really wonderful follow-up. And the median follow-up at this point in time has been 21.3 months. The secondary endpoint of the ORR and the clinical benefit rate, so the objective response rate was 58% in the inavulative arm versus 25% in the control arm, whereas the combined uh, benefit rate or clinical benefit rate was 75% in the inavolusive arm and 47% in the placebo arm. So that's really, really juicy, juicy numbers. Key secondary endpoints for overall survival, uh, not reached in either arm, which is as to be expected. It is trending towards statistical significance with the hazard ratio of 0.64 at mo- at the moment. And in the pelvocyclic arm, it was 311 months. If we dig a little bit deeper, uh, most groups did benefit the use of anavolisib, but more so in the premenopausal women, uh, slightly more in those with an ECOG of zero. And interesting, patients from North America or Western Europe did cross that confidence interval. I wonder if it was small, small numbers. I'm not particularly sure. And those over the age of 65, but if you look at the numbers, there was only 25 in that arm and 34 in the control arm, so pretty pretty small numbers. Moving on to important things, because with new drugs, new novel drugs come new toxicities, and that's something to really keep about. They're not classical toxicities, but you've got the, the neutropenia, and you're going to get that in the context of the pelvocycle. We already know that. But other things that are somewhat more interesting, okay, so adverse events to think of that are specific for Inavo 120 that you want to think about include diarrhea, rash, stomatitis, and you've, of course, got to keep a very close eye on the blood sugar levels as well, which is sort of a known thing for the PIK3CA mutant drugs. And in this particular case, all grades, we saw 58% in the navalisib arm versus a mere 8% in the placebo pelvocyclib arm. So that's important. And also diarrhea was 48% versus that of the control arm of 16%. So a couple of things about navalisib that I would love to talk about, Michael, is that it is far stronger binder for PIK3CA compared to its slightly older cousin, Elpolisib. What you can see when you look at the PIK3CA selectivity versus gamma, it's about 32 times versus delta, it's 26 times. I think these are different receptor points they were talking about. And so that's quite interesting. And, you know, there is an ongoing conversation here at yeah, the breast conference, essentially saying like new, new generation of drugs, new toxicities, how do we minimize that and maximize quality of life for these patients? Well, so what are the implications though? And I think that's the bigger question. Overall survival has not yet been reached and we do need to see that, but it's a highly effective regimen in those with relative endocrine resistance metastatic disease. The good thing is a high percentage of Asian patients as well. And the thing you have to think about is like, where does this then slot in? Would it be more effective if you gave it to ribocyclib or well, ribocyclib in this case? And is it better than, you know, 
El Palisib as well, like have there been a head-to-head trial? And there is, and that's currently Inavo 121, which is recruiting at present looking at El Palisib versus Inavo Lisib. So any of our Australian community who are listening, uh, there are sites that are recruiting for PIK3CA mutations. A very interesting study, Josh. The main thing that I took away from this was that PIK3 kinase was once an agent or a target with such promise, and it seemed to falter initially. I think the initial data didn't really show too much of a benefit for the older agents, but this is very promising and maybe a means to use an old target and teach it some new tricks. That's it, some new tricks, but an exciting study, and who knows if we can start using this in other cancer types as well. Spread its wings just like immunotherapy. Exactly because PIK3 kinase is a fairly common and, by my understanding, quite universal mutation. It's not mutation that is limited to breast cancer. Yeah, I think it's a truncal mutation. So it has a lot of downstream mutations as well. So it's a complex drug. And of course, if you think I think it's a capivacitib, which works on AKT from memory, don't quote me on that. You can't kind of use one and the other because they're sort of in the same pathway paradigm. But Mikey, do we want to jump to the update that you're to talk to us about. Absolutely. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of discussion, some quite heated debate in the breast cancer space about the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors. The focus recently has mainly been on the adjuvant setting with the Monarchy study recently hogging the limelight in its initial analysis for adjuvant abemacyclib. Let it not be said that abemacyclib is not multi-talented. And what I mean by that is there's been a number of studies studying abemacyclib's use in breast cancer. There was a final analysis presented at San Antonio of Monarch 3, and this is a bemocyclib in the hormone receptor positive HER2 negative advanced breast cancer space. I'm pretty sure we've talked about this one previously, Josh, so I'll skip through a lot of the details. But to summarize, a bemocyclib is an oral potent CDK4-6 inhibitor with greater selectivity for CDK4 than CDK6, allowing for continuous dosing resulting in less myelosuppression, which is an issue seen in both palbocyclib and ribocyclib, where you obviously need that break. And in the latter's case, you frequently need a dose reduction. Prior results show a significant improvement in progression-free survival with a hazard ratio of 0.54 and a p-value of many zeros uh, as initial therapy in the advanced hormone receptor-positive breast cancer space. There was a recent interim overall survival analysis at 5.8 years of median follow-up, which demonstrated a numerically favorable median difference of 12.6 months with a hazard ratio of 0.754, but as it was an interim overall survival analysis, was not statistically significant. The competition is Mona Lisa 2, now standard of care, one might say, for advanced breast cancer because it is to date the only CDK4-6 inhibitor that has demonstrated statistically significant overall survival benefits of 63.9 months compared to 51.4 months with placebo, with a p-value of 0.008. Study design, it's fairly standard. Patients had to have hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative advanced breast cancer. They had to be postmenopausal. They had to either have metastatic loco-regionally recurrent disease with no prior systemic therapy. If they had had neoadjuvant endocrine therapy administered, a disease-free interval of greater than 12 months must be observed so that you're not picking out cancers that are not necessarily driven by estrogen and progesterone. Patients were randomized two to one to receive either a bemocyclib, 150 milligrams orally twice a day in combination with anastrozole or letrozole or a matching placebo. In total, there were 493 patients, which of note is about 150, 160 less than uh, both the ribocyclib and 
palbocyclid studies. The primary endpoint, which has already been mentioned, was the investigator-assessed progression-free survival. But what we're really interested in is the key secondary endpoint of overall survival. Other key secondary endpoints included response rates and safety. There was also an exploratory endpoint of chemotherapy-free survival, so the time from onset of treatment to the patient requiring chemotherapy. So the overall survival in the intention-to-treat population. Let's just cut right to the chase. Josh, it's not great for abemocyclib. It's not great news for abemocyclib if you're looking at the numbers. So there is, credit where it's due, a numerical uh, improvement. The abemocyclib arm, the median overall survival was 66.8 months compared to 53.7 months in the placebo arm. So numerically, actually quite similar to Mona Lisa 2. The hazard ratio was 0.804 with a p-value of 0.066. So not statistically significant, but a lot of abemocyclibs proponents are already rushing to its defense and saying, well, the delta was quite significant numerically and there are a number of other things that we'll discuss in a bit. In terms of the subgroup analysis, apart from the patients who had ER positive but PR negative, so what we would call luminal B disease, and this group only had 75 patients in total, all other subtypes did not show statistical significance. These subgroups included patient age, organ involvement, race or ethnicity, ECOG status, as well as visceral disease. But in this latter group, there was a numerically longer overall survival compared to the control arm by 14.9 months. The chemotherapy-free survival, this is that exploratory endpoint we were talking about, demonstrated a significant improvement with the addition of abemocyclib. The addition of the CDK deferred initiation of chemotherapy with a 16.1 month improvement, 46.7 months compared to 30.6 months with a p-value of 0.001. Interestingly, there was also some data on post-discontinuation therapy. In terms of subsequent therapy, 41% of patients in the abemocyclib arm and 62% of patients in the placebo arm had chemotherapy and 29% of patients in the abem arm compared to 48% in the placebo arm had targeted therapy. So while patients in the abemocyclib arm do do numerically better, they also appear to, for whatever reason, be less likely to have subsequent therapy. Also, a small footnote, as it were, a small proportion of patients in the abemocyclib arm had palbocyclib as subsequent therapy, which is interesting and not something that I've ever seen done, Josh. I always thought that if you burn through one CDK4-6, you sort of burn through them all. There's not a lot of evidence to support switching of CDK4-6s, and in the Australian landscape, we don't get it on the PBS, so you wouldn't be able to fund it anyway unless you're going to pay a couple thousand dollars a month for a drug that may or may not work. Exactly right. There was no significant safety signals. Abemocyclib we know is very associated with diarrhea that was present in 83% of patients in the investigation arm. Other toxicities included neutropenia and fatigue. So in conclusion, after a median follow-up of over eight years, abemocyclib with a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor resulted in numerically longer but not statistically significant overall survival benefit. There are a number of questions raised. So was this stumbling block, was this lack of statistical significance due to the drug or due to the trial? As mentioned, a number of people have subsequently gone onto Twitter, as is the way of the world these days, and said that a potential reason for the lack of statistical significance was the smaller number of patients. As mentioned, there was 160 fewer patients in this study than in the equivalent arms for palpocyclib and ribocyclib. Given that the numbers are similar, would the increased population 
tick this over into statistical significance? I'm not sure. I guess really the main thing is that if you're going by the numbers, you can't say that abemocyclib is better than ribocyclib. It really falls more into the palbocyclib role. And palbocyclib, as we know, tends to have a better side effect profile. So which one do you use? A lot of people are still going to use abemocyclib, but if you're going by the numbers, ribocyclib has really come out on top. And the only way we're going to be able to tell specifically is if the drug companies combine to do a triple head-to-head trial to truly see which is best. I really don't think uh, whoever makes ribocyclib is going to be too interested in that, Josh, because they have nothing to they have nothing to gain and a lot to lose with this data. And well, that's exactly it. And I I think, you know, it's always nice to have choices, I think, for patients, because ultimately a patient doesn't tolerate ribocyclib. We have two other choices. And the real world practice is that if they don't tolerate one drug, you can always switch to another for whatever reason, whether that be fatigue, neutropenia, diarrhea, as prime examples of that. But I think the practice, at least that I've seen in Australia and that we practice is ribocyclib is our number one, followed by either abemocyclib or pelbocyclib, depending which which sort of arm you lean on. Absolutely. And that element of choice is important because obviously the biggest unique issue with ribocyclib is its potential cardiac toxicity as well as its myelosuppressive potential. So if you've got a patient with significant cardiac disease, you might for the patient's safety, actually defer to palbocyclib or abemocyclib. You still can fit the side effect profile to the patient, and that's very important. But if you're going by the numbers and there's no contraindications, then as you say, ribocyclib is probably the way to go. Josh, moving right along, why don't you tell us about the next update that you picked up from San Antonio, which is an update of the Catherine study. For those that don't know, Catherine study is a phase three. It's an adjuvant study looking at trastuzumab emtanzine or TDM1 versus the, the historical breadwinner of HER2, the HER2 world, which is trastuzumab for residual invasive HER2 positive early breast cancer after neoadjuvant chemotherapy and HER2 targeted therapy. And this was the final invasive disease-free survival and updated overall survival analysis. Analysis. So it was a randomized one-to-one trial to either TDM1 or trastuzumab in patients who had had prior neoadjuvant therapy, either six cycles of chemotherapy as a minimum, plus nine weeks of trastuzumab, and a second HER2 target agent was allowed, which is usually pertuzumab. The residual invasive tumor in the breast or axillary nodes, and they were randomized within 12 weeks of surgery. The primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival, and the secondary endpoint being that of overall survival, quality of life, safety, and with invasive disease-free survival with second primary non-breast cancers being included in that secondary endpoint as well. That's a bit of a mouthful. So Catherine, the primary analysis was from 2018, which is three years, showing an invasive disease-free survival of 88 versus 77% with a hazard ratio of 0.50. So that is already quite significant at the three-year mark. And the overall survival at that point in time, there were not enough events from my understanding. So only 56 events in trastuzumab versus 42 events in the TDM1 with a p-value of 0.08 at that point in time. Patient disposition, this is quite interesting. So alive on... Uh, and on study included 62% in the trastuzumab arm and 70% in the TDM1 arm. The seven-year absolute IDFS benefit was 13.7% at that cutoff. So that brings a hazard ratio of 0.54. So that's 80.8% had an invasive disease-free survival at seven years versus 67.1% in the control arm. 
You could just leave it there, Josh. <laughs> I could, I could, but let's keep going. So one of the things to talk about is, you know, the pathological nodal status after the preoperative therapy. So node positive was... 46% in the trastuzumab and 46% in the TDM1 arm and no negative was 53%. So like it's a well-balanced trial and I think that's something that's really important. The side of first occurrence of an IDFS event, so that's if they've had a recurrence, whether that be local or metastatic. So total patients, you saw that in about 32% versus 19.7% in the TDM1 arm. CNS, interestingly, was seen in 20% versus 14%, obviously worse in the trastuzumab arm. Local regional in 6 versus 2% and contralateral breast in 2.6 versus 0.9% and death without a prior event was 1.9% as well. The second overall survival interim analysis with a median follow-up of 8.4 years, so that's 101 months, Michael, was 89.1% versus 84.4% with an absolute overall survival benefit of 4.7% at that seven-year mark. So people who had residual disease, this is the benefit you're getting switching someone to TDM1. Is there anything else that I really need to talk about? I think I'm just going to skip through the subgroup analysis. It's all there, but I think it was just important to tell you that it is still beneficial and it is still the standard of care for this present time. And subsequent lines of therapy, so the trastuzumab component went to TDM1 was 31.4% as a second line of therapy versus TDXD of 1.8%. And if you look at the TDM1, they were somewhat reversed. Remember, this trial started well before TDXD graced our shores with a lovely hazard ratio and benefit for our patients. So the conclusion, you can see that TDM1 significantly improved overall survival in patients with HER2 positive early breast cancer with a hazard ratio of 0.66 and a seven-year overall survival of 80 9.1%. There were no new safety features and cardiac toxicity was rare in both arms. And so TDM1 is the first therapy to show improved survival post-surgery in patients with HER2 early breast cancer. Now remember, this might all change in the next five years as TDXC and a host of other ADCs come into the world. But for now, this is still the best we have evidence for. Absolutely. Although it must be said that there is the Destiny 05 study, which is currently examining TDXD versus TDM1. So tdm one reign at the top might be short-lived. But if you don't have a trial, TDM1 is still pretty damn good. Josh, I might wrap up this San Antonio special by talking about something different. This is the Preferable Effect Study. And I've been staring at this title for ages, Josh, and I have no idea how they came up with this acronym, but it is a study that aims to investigate the effects of supervised and individualized exercise in patients with metastatic breast cancer on fatigue and quality of life. This is a great study. I cannot tell you how many times... I have been asked by a patient, should I exercise? I always tell them that being active is never a bad thing, but now I actually have some data to back it up. The background to this is that quality of life is a significant consideration for patients with advanced or early breast cancer, early cancer in general. Exercise during adjuvant cancer treatment leads to improved cardiorespiratory fitness, strength, fatigue, and other patient-reported outcomes. The recommendation is for aerobic and resistance exercise for curative cancer, for patients with curative cancer, which sort of makes sense. They're going to have usually a fairly long life expectancy, particularly in this space, but there is a lack of evidence for patients with metastatic disease. The aim of this study, as mentioned, was to invest investigate the effects of supervised and individualized exercise programs in those with metastatic cancer. In terms of the study design, after signing informed consent, patients were randomized into an intervention group, which 
which comprised of a nine-month structured and personalised exercise program, and a control group, which was usual care and general physical activity advice. The supervised exercise program was two sessions per week, each uh, lasting for 60 minutes, with standard exercise advice for three months and then six months, and then supervised exercise once per week, lasting for 60 minutes, followed by an unsupervised exercise once per week at 60 minutes. The exercise programs included aerobic training, which was either moderate or high-intensity interval training, resistance training of the major lower and upper body muscles, and balance training. The control group, as mentioned, just got general exercise advice. Do this for a certain amount of time during the week, and you'll be good. Inclusion criteria, patients had to be greater than 18 years old. They had to have a diagnosis of stage 4 breast cancer and have an ECOG performance status of less than 2, as well as the life expectancy of greater than 6 months. Exclusion criteria are fairly obvious unstable bone mets because you can't submit someone to an exercise program if they're at risk of breaking a femur or having a vertebral fracture or if they were and this this is great josh i love this one if they were too physically active and what they define that as is exercise of greater than 210 minutes per week which is much more than i do josh i don't know about you oh uh, i think i'd be hitting pretty close to that if you've really got to be honest maybe a little bit more i'm quite an active guy these days oh very good very good and such a humble one as well oh yeah you know my muscles are just bulging thinking about you know everyone listening to this conversation on air absolutely gosh i hope it's only your muscles that are bulging um in terms of <laughs> keep going in ter- keep going in terms of the outcomes In terms of the outcomes for this study, the primary outcome was cancer-related physical fatigue and health-related quality of life. Secondary endpoints were pain, breast cancer-specific symptoms, anxiety and depression, polyneuropathy and sleep toxicity, treatment-related toxicities, physical fitness, performance and body composition, disease biomarkers, and overall physical activity. If either or both of the primary endpoints were statistically significant between the two groups, the study was deemed a success. In this study, they managed to get 357 patients who had similar characteristics across the two groups. The median age was around 55 years old. Greater than 65% of patients were married or living with a significant other. In terms of their disease characteristics, patients were either on first or second line treatment. The majority of Patients had hormone receptor positive HER2 negative tumors and bone mets were also common. In terms of attendance in the supervised exercise program, 77% of patients attended all sessions and non-attendance was generally due to medical region, medical reasons or logistical reasons. Six months post-randomization, 18% had discontinued the intervention and 40, 44% of this was due to death. In terms of the maximal short exercise capacity, which amazingly is measured in watts. In the control group, the average maximal short exercise capacity was 200 to start with and stayed pretty consistent from three to six months. In the exercise control group, the maximal short exercise capacity started at the same baseline, about 200, but significantly increased at three to six months. In terms of physical fitness outcomes, the fitness was higher at three months and six months in the intervention arm. Quality of life was higher in the intervention group for the for the duration of the study, and this was statistically significant. Fatigue decreased in the intervention group compared to the control group, and the quality of function scales demonstrated better physical functioning in the intervention group and better functioning in family life with friends and if and if they were working, better working life as well. There was no change between the two groups in emotional fatigue or functioning, which is understandable. Pain was significantly lower in the exercise group compared to the control group, and dyspnea was also significantly lower. So Josh, 
When you are next seeing a breast cancer patient with advanced breast cancer and they're asking, Dr. Hurwitz, I've been a fit and active person my entire life. Now that I've got cancer, should I keep going? What do you say? Yes. Excellent. You had a 50% 50 chance of getting that right. Yes, you do. Absolutely. And there is good evidence that a graded or supervised exercise program actually significantly improves quality of life for patients with advanced breast cancer. I know a lot of centers that are actually developing pathways with their physiotherapy and occupational therapy units for uh, standardized exercise programs for patients with advanced cancer. This is becoming something that is increasingly part of our multidisciplinary management of these patients. And there aren't too many cons to doing a bit more exercise or encouraging a bit more exercise for your patients? I think there are zero cons. And as I tell my patients, I've been doing it for ages. You know, the medicine won't won't potentially make you feel better. It's everything else. We're not the center of the universe when it comes to cancer. I think all the other players in that MDT team really contribute so much more than what a doctor can do in 15, 20, or even half an hour. Absolutely, completely agree. There have been so many good sessions and discussions at SABCS this year. And, you know, I, I don't think one, one session gives us justice, but given it's the end of the year and we've got so much other stuff to talk about, we're going to close it there. But we will leave a couple of extra things on our website if you want to check that out. And as always, if you want to contact us, our email is inquisitiveonk at gmail.com. That's inquisitiveonk at gmail.com. Sounds good. And some might say, and that's the way it is this 9th of December, 2023. I'm Michael, that's Josh, and we will see you next time. Next up is the news. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com. Yeah.